This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2. Today we are talking about George Washington Carver and those verses. And in fact, the Psalm 121 was his favorite Bible verse, Bible set of readings. And those of you who remember George Washington Carver, he was well known for being a scientist, a botanist, an agriculturalist, a food scientist, and he made tremendous contributions in the field of agriculture, particularly known for coming up with 300 different ways to use the peanut. And he came up with more than or almost 200 different ways of using the sweet potato. So we're going to talk about him today. One thing I didn't know about George Washington Carver was the richness and depth of his spiritual life. And we'll talk about that as well. He was born in Missouri near an area called Diamond Grove. And it's believed that he was born somewhere in 1864. He lived 78 years and died in 1943, and he was in Alabama at the time that he died, and it was because of the complications of a fall down the stairs in his home is how he died. Now, his parents were actually enslaved, and they were owned by the Carver family, Moses and Susan Carver, and George Washington Carver being born about a year before the Emancipation Proclamation was proclaimed that would free the enslaved people. However, early in his life, when he was about a week old, his mother and his sister and he, they were all kidnapped by what was known as the Night Raiders. And these Night Raiders were from Kentucky. So what people would do is they would steal enslaved people who were already placed in one household and take them further south to other destinations and resell them. And his father, in the meantime, had been killed as well. The Carvers, being concerned that their workers, their enslaved workers, had been carted off in this night raid, they sent a neighbor to go and look for them. And so when the neighbor got down to Kentucky, he never found George Washington Carver's mother, never found his sister. However, he did find George, and he was able to trade one of the finest horses of the Carver family in order to get George back. So George came back to the farm in Missouri, to the Carver homestead, where his brother Jim also had remained. Over the years, Jim continued to work in the fields and to do field work 
George was a little more on the frail side so far as actually doing a lot of outdoor work. So he was taught by Mrs. Carver how to do a lot of activities in the home, including how to even mix up herbal and medicinal kinds of potions and medications, natural sorts of medications. So that's how he grew up. Now, the Carvers, not only did they just retain George and Jim as enslaved individuals, they actually adopted them. They adopted them officially into their family. George, being a little on the sickly side, had many illnesses when he was growing up, although that did not stop him from really being a very vibrant person in many ways. And although his brother Jim stayed on the farm and continued to work alongside Moses Carver to do the work, George was interested in education and learning more. So when he was about 10 years old, he had to leave the farm because there were no black schools in that part of Missouri. There were no schools that were open to black children. So at 10 years old, he walked about 10 miles and got to another area in Kansas where he was able to go to school. And as he was in this region, there was a family there, a black family that saw him. He was sitting on their fence one day. He looked kind of emaciated and as if he was in dire need. And that family was the Watkins family, Andrew and Mariah Watkins. And he would refer to Mrs. Watkins as Aunt Mariah. So they took him in and they actually took care of him when he was there to go to school. And Aunt Mariah even talked to him about a woman during the time of their slavery. And the woman's name was Libby. Libby had learned to read. And in her learning to read, which was really not encouraged, and in fact, if an enslaved person had learned to read, they would usually be sold into a much harsher and more difficult form of slavery in the deeper South as a punishment. So they had to keep it quiet that Libby knew how to read, and Libby taught a number of the other enslaved people how to read as well. So Aunt Mariah even learned to read a little as well. And so a gift for Christmas that she gave George was a Bible. And she said to him, read this when you really learn how to read and remember to give your learning back to your people. So those were some words that she shared with young George back in the day. After George finished the school in that small town, he learned everything that he could learn from that teacher. And then he realized that he needed to have even more than what was available at that time. And so he progressed on and moved to Minneapolis, Kansas. And that's where he graduated from high school. Now, keep in mind, he's still a child, but he's mostly on his own during these years, doing odd jobs and work along the way in order to support himself and to get the education that he wanted to obtain. Eventually, he applied to go to college after he graduated from high school. He actually sent an application to a Presbyterian college in Highland, Kansas. They accepted him into the university. However, when he arrived and got there and they looked at him and they said, oh, you didn't tell us that you were a Negro and we don't accept Negroes in our school. So they would not allow him to start in the university. 
So he spent a number of years after that trying to figure out what to do. And then eventually he applied to another school at someone else's encouragement because they saw the talent that he had. And so he applied to a college in Iowa, Indianola, and this was Simpson College, which was a Methodist school, and they accepted him into their university, and he was studying art. And what he used to draw was all kinds of plants, and his art was really spectacular and quite amazing. However, what his professors also recognized is that not only was he proficient in drawing the plants, he knew about the plants. He had deep knowledge about those plants. And so the instructor said to him, or thought to himself, a Black man is not going to be successful at this time as an artist. That's not going to be a way that he can make a living. And so he encouraged him to go to what was now going to be Iowa State University, and at the time was called Iowa State Agricultural College, and he encouraged him to study botany. And he figured that if he studied botany and he had more of an agricultural degree, he would be able to use that to take care of himself. So he went to Iowa State University, and he was the first Black person to earn a degree in college, and that was in 1894. He got his bachelor's degree. He also continued on and received his master's degree in 1896. He was very well known for studying crops and crop disease, and he was a well-respected botanist. And in fact, at the University of Iowa State, he became the first Black lecturer. He was so proficient and competent that he was offered a job there as a professor. At the same time, however, he received a letter from Booker T. Washington, who was the head of the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. And Booker T. Washington wrote to him and said, would you please come to our school and would you teach here? When he got that letter, he realized Aunt Mariah's words were coming to fruition. This was his opportunity to share and give his learning to his own people. He would be teaching those who were previously enslaved, helping them to figure out the best techniques for farming, agriculture, and being successful. So he decided to go to what later became Tuskegee Institute, and he stayed there for 47 years. And in fact, that's where he died. When he went to Tuskegee and he arrived, he looked around. It was a dim environment. The buildings were kind of shabby. It wasn't a very glamorous looking place at all. And as he looked at the soil, and he was an expert in soil analysis, he saw that the soil had been greatly depleted over the years from cotton farming. Years and years of continual cotton farming depletes the soil. And so he was known for rotating crops to be able to replenish the soil of the needed minerals. And some of that crop rotation included rotating the crops with peanuts, with sweet potatoes, and other crops that would replenish the soil so that later you could then replant cotton again. He didn't just go, you just didn't go year after year 
planting cotton continuing to deplete the soil. George Washington Carver wasn't really interested in money or fame. And Booker T. Washington told him, you're not going to get money or fame coming here. I'm offering you an invitation for hard work. And George Washington Carver was up for that task. When he got there and he tested the soil and he saw that there were all these challenges and he started teaching the students. And by the way, he was much more interested in being a researcher and a scientist more than teaching students. However, he had to teach students. He had to be a part-time janitor. He had to be a researcher. He had to do so many different jobs and wear so many hats at the same time. And the students actually loved him because he was an excellent teacher, although that wasn't necessarily his personal passion. And of course, there weren't a lot of resources. And one of the things that he believed is the obvious purpose for something is not the only purpose for it. And you have to look deeper to find out what else you can do with an item. So he told his students they didn't have a laboratory and they needed a laboratory in order to do the advanced work that he wanted to do. So he sent them out to the junkyards. He sent them out to the alleys and the byways to bring back tin, to bring back glass bottles, to bring back what looked like a bunch of junk. And he told them, it looks like junk to you. However, when we're finished with it, when we add our intelligence to it, it's going to be something useful. And he took all of those items and he created beakers and he created Bunsen burners and he created everything he needed for a laboratory. And that was really useful for the students to learn because when they would go back to their communities, they were not going to have a lot of resources. And now they were learning how to repurpose what looked like junk and to use it for the greater glory and purpose of serving the people. He had the laboratory and he also created what ended up being known as Jessup wagons, which was traveling laboratories so that he could go to surrounding areas, test their soil, and let them know what they needed to do in order to bring things back into a state of health. I mentioned earlier that George Washington Carver was also a person of deep faith. When he was living on the Carver property in Missouri, there was a wooded area that was part of the property, and he used to walk there very frequently. And what he learned and discovered is that nature was both a cathedral and a university. And when he was about 10 years old and walking through the wooded area, that's when he had his first encounter with God. It was a profound encounter. And it's almost as if God commissioned him at that time for what would be his purpose in his life. He ended up reading the Bible every day of his life, and he taught the Bible for more than 30 years. And as I mentioned, he was very committed to the people of the South, Black people in particular, who he knew needed the information that God was giving to him. And he believed that the insight that he had about plants, his understanding about how plants work, it was insight that he received because he sought and received that guidance from God himself. And he believed that you had to work with the land 
rather than against the land. In other words, there were some rules of nature that if you follow them, you would be successful. And so even crop rotation was a part of that. So by the 1920s and 30s, he was known as the peanut man because of all the ways that he had identified for using the peanut, not just in terms of food, but also in terms of chemicals, in terms of cleaning agents, all kinds of potions for multiple purposes he found for the peanut. So he became known as quite a scientist and quite a chemist as well. He referred to his lab as God's little workshop. Later on, he went to the U.S. House and Ways and Means Committee. This was in 1921 to give a speech. He was allotted a 10-minute time period, and he was there on behalf of the peanut industry. He wanted to talk about why it was important to have peanut crops, and he wanted to preserve that opportunity. However, he was so eloquent and so interesting in talking about the peanut that, in fact, they allowed him to speak for an hour and 40 minutes and told him that he could come back at any time. When the chairman of the committee asked him where he'd learned all of this, he said that he learned it from the Bible. And he went on to say that God was the one who made the peanut, and he asked God to show him about the peanut. And God revealed the secrets about the peanut. He also ended up traveling to India during the time of Mahatma Gandhi, and he worked there to help them think about nutrition in a developing nation. So it was not only in the United States, he also had a little bit of an international presence as well. Thinking back to what he further said about his connection to God, he saw his purpose as being God's co-worker, and he felt it was important to let nothing keep him from his God-given duty. Being born again in God and having this supernatural encounter with God in the Carver Woods, it elevated him to a totally different and new plane. And he was committed to seeking to know the truth. And he said his purpose alone was God's purpose to increase the welfare and happiness of God's people. He says that human need is a spiritual vacuum that God actually seeks to fill. And he saw himself as an agent between God and man. And he believed, as Philippians 4.13 says, that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And he believed that it was God's forces who worked through him to awaken in him an answer to any insoluble problem. Sometimes he would go to sleep at night, and when he awakened the next day, he had the answer that he was seeking. Part of the story about learning about the peanut was at a young age, he really asked God to reveal to him the mystery of the universe. And as the story goes, God says to him, that's for me to know, and that's beyond you. However, when he asked him to reveal the mystery of the peanut, God supposedly said, okay, now that's more like it. That's something that's more worthy of you, where you are as a human being to understand. And that's what he revealed to him. There were so many scientific discoveries that he made. He could have patented so much. He chose not to patent it. 
there were only three things that he developed that he actually patented. In general, he wanted his knowledge and expertise to be available and open to the general public. And he felt that if he went about patenting everything, that it would create barriers and people would not be able to use the knowledge and the information. He also believed that you could learn more from walking in nature and letting nature speak with the voice of God than you probably could even learn in most books. So for him, nature was this unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks every hour if you will only listen. So in his spiritual life, each day was met with prayer to God and listening to God to hear what God would share with him in terms of supernatural and divine wisdom. He spent a lot of time walking and talking with the creator about what the creator had created. And he thanked God daily as he took those walks and talks with God. He was often criticized for his faith. However, he was never ashamed of his faith. In 1924, a New York Times reporter criticized him about him saying that God was his inspiration for scientific discoveries. That was a hard thing for people to understand this juxtaposition of faith and science, and they saw this as an impossibility. However, from Carver's point of view, inspiration is never at variance with information. And he said, the more information one has, the greater will be the inspiration. And he went on further to say that faith in Jesus Christ is the only mechanism by which I could effectively pursue and perform the art of science. And he says, and it was the Lord that guided me. And without my Savior, I am nothing. That's what he said. When he died, he was buried next to Booker T. Washington at the university. And after he died, people left many of the naturalistic approaches that he taught, which were so effective, healthy for the environment, healthy for people, healthy for the ground and soils, healthy for animals. And that's when we were ushered into the age of pesticides and fertilizers that replaced the sustainable agriculture that he taught. And of course, we are still reaping the negative consequences of the failure to listen to what he actually dialed in at the time. Because of his many contributions, Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed legislation to create a monument in his honor. And prior to that time, monuments were reserved only for people who were presidents and former presidents. The monument to George Washington Carver is now in the Missouri area where he grew up. He was also posthumously inducted to the National Inventors Hall of Fame. And I want to share with you several lessons that I think are business lessons for the Christian executive who is a marketplace ministry leader, and you care about what God is leading you to do in your workplace. These are the seven lessons that I think are important to extract from the life of George Washington Carver. Number one, discover your God-given purpose and call. George Washington Carver spent a lot of time figuring that out, and particularly after his supernatural encounter with God at 10 years old. Take time to discover it. Number two, recognize 
that we have everything that we need for life and godliness, as is described in 2 Peter 1 through 3. In other words, God has left those resources here on the earth for us to discover as well. Number three, ask for and use divine guidance and power, which he certainly did. Number four, cultivate a deep, daily, and abiding relationship with God. He recognized that the wisdom he was receiving was not from man, and he recognized that his his channel to receive that wisdom was his relationship with God, so he kept that relationship strong. Number five, appreciate and mine for the wisdom that God has put in his creation. Spend time in God's creation. Study what God has created. Look at it. Learn from the plants. Learn from the animals. Learn from the stars, from the clouds, from the sky. Learn from all that God has left down here for us. Six, serve your fellow man with the gifts God has given you. The gifts are not just for you alone. The gifts are also for those who he's placed in your company, those who he's placed under your charge, under your leadership, those who he's given for you to develop and mentor. So serve your fellow man with the gifts that God has given you. Seven, pass the learning forward to your people. In other words, create a living leadership legacy that lives way beyond the number of years that you will live on the earth. It will live through the people that you have resourced, the people that you have filled with the wisdom that you receive from God yourself. And so when I think about George Washington Carver, I think about him as kind of a King Solomon from a biblical point of view, King Solomon in the Bible, because King Solomon was the wisest man on the earth during his day. And so I'd like to close our segment today by reading a reading from the book of 1 Kings in the Bible, 1 Kings, the fourth chapter, starting with verse 29. And it's giving us a little bit of insight about King Solomon. And I think this insight also applies to George Washington Carver. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus, Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish, and men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon.
You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.